Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Friday night, fans may be eager to see live music again, but many musicians are finding it increasingly hard to afford to tour. Why is that? Can it be fixed? And how can you better support the bands that you love? The World Cup kicks off later this month, but there's a dark cloud hanging over soccer's biggest tournament and host Cutter's terrible human rights record. One rights group says Canada could and should be doing more to make our opposition clear. What can I do to help advance reconciliation? It is the question former Attorney General and Federal Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould is asked more than any other by Canadians, so she's put down her thoughts and advice in a new book called True Reconciliation. It hits bookshelves on Tuesday, and she joins us to talk about the motivation and inspiration behind it. But first, more than a million Ontario students were out of class today as tens of thousands of education workers there hit picket lines. It is the latest salvo in a high-stakes battle between the union QPs and the Ford government who invoked the notwithstanding clause to force a contract on the workers and override their charter rights. We find out why governments across the country will be watching closely to see who blinks first. More than a million kids in Ontario weren't in school today as the province continued its standoff with the union representing some 55,000 education workers. We talked about this on the show last night, earlier this week as well. Yesterday, the Ford government did indeed pass legislation which imposed a new contract on those workers, which include educational assistants, administrative staff, custodians, and so forth, and declared any strike action illegal, invoking the notwithstanding clause of the Canadian Constitution to avoid that being challenged in court. Now, ultimately, the Canadian Union of Public Employees, or QP, told the province it didn't matter. Members would walk out anyway. So today they did. They picketed at Queen's Park in front of the legislature. They picketed in front of politicians' offices across the province. And they're getting support from several other unions, including several that backed Doug Ford's Conservatives in the recent election. Laura Walton, president of CUPE's Ontario School Board Council of Unions, was among the protesters in front of Education Minister Stephen Lecce's office today, calling on the province to return to negotiations, saying the protests and the strike will continue if that doesn't happen. The plan for today is to be out at as many of these picket lines where all of these amazing workers are, where all of these amazing supports are, where all of these amazing parents and kids are, to stand up and say to this government, we're done. You cannot rip away the rights of workers and expect that we're just going to take it sitting down. So what is the battle about? Well, for the striking workers, it is about really earning a fair wage, according to them. Uh, The union reportedly lowered their demand to about a 6% raise. It had been around 11%. The province imposed contract is 2% for those above $43,000 a year, 2.5% per year for those below that. But keep in mind, these workers have been on a wage freeze for quite a while. The cost of living is obviously higher than 2% or 2.5% right now. So really, they're working for less. Every year, they work for a little bit less money or a little bit less take-home money, uh, if you think about it that way. Meantime, the province took the fight to the Ontario Labor Relations Board today, seeking to have the strike declared illegal and the actions by union leaders to encourage the job action declared unlawful. So this has really quickly turned into a real battle, a real war. And uh, part of the reason for that is that there are several other public sector unions in Ontario negotiating new contracts with the government. So this has become sort of, uh, you know, where each side is planting their flag. It's caught up in all the middle of it, of course, are kids. 
out of school once again after a few disruptive years, uh, very disruptive years, and parents left wondering what's next. Last night, we spoke with mother of two, an early childhood educator, Bronwyn Alsop. Here's what she had to say. Finally, thinking as a parent that we're walking into a normal school year for them to have a glimpse of normalcy and, you know, their future. When my daughter came to me and she said, Mommy, carry my backpack for me. I have my Chromebook. I broke down. Uh, she didn't see me cry. Uh, I had sunglasses on, but it hit me so hard because I feel like we're right back where we were before. A tough time for parents and kids today. The uncertainty of it all as well. Joining me now is Charles Smith. He's an associate professor at the University of Saskatchewan, co-author of Unions and Court, A History of the Labour Movement's Engagement with the Charter. Thanks for your time tonight. No problem. Nice to be here, Ben. So this is, I mean, it it really turned into this kind of all-out war very quickly. But if you look at the union side of things, uh, and I hate the term existential, but I'm going to use it anyway in this one. Like this is really a battle for what, fundamentally matters to these unions, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you look at the Canadian labor force, uh, you know, the union density has declined in the last 30 years, but where it's remained strong and where the Canadian labor movement is strong is in the public sector. Almost 70% of the unionized workforce in Canada is in the public sector. Uh, And, you know, this this, uh, heavy-handed action by the Ford government um, essentially, you know, imposes two things happening. One is they've imposed, you know, pretty sweeping back to work legislation, which is pretty common in Canada, at least in the last 30 years. But it's also uh, imposed a contract and blocked the union from being able to appeal it in court by using the notwithstanding clause. And that became important in 2015 when the Supreme Court ruled that there was a collective right to strike in the charter. And governments that have tried these tactics have ended up paying uh, quite a bit of money uh, for taking away those rights. And that happened in BC and it's happened in Ontario. And, you know, it was very possible we could have seen that here. So the Ford government has blocked all of those avenues and really said, we're not bargaining and we're not letting you withdraw your labor. Uh, you have to take this contract. And for unions, I mean, that is the bread and butter of what unions do. And it really is. I think the existential crisis is not uh, uncalled for here. I think that's a good way of describing it. Yeah. So what happens now? Because it looks like both sides have dug in. Um, If the whole point for the province of Ontario was to keep kids in school, well, that's failed. And it feels like they've sort of set up future negotiations because a lot of public sector unions in Ontario and elsewhere, for that matter, who are negotiating contracts right now with one eye on recent wage freezes and another eye on the cost of living increases. This feels like we're entering a time of some real serious labor unrest here if governments such as the Ford government decide they're going to, you know, put a line in the sand and and not move. Yeah, I mean, it's not uncommon that when we see periods of high inflation, we see periods of high labor conflict. So that's actually following a fairly, you know, consistent historical pattern. But in this particular case, I think what the Florida government is doing is they're drawing a line in the sand with wage increases that were more common during periods of low interest rates uh, that are not addressing the cost of living, as your introduction said. Uh, But we're also seeing this attack on collective bargaining and making it possible for workers to sort of address the, 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 the core issue. So I think you're absolutely right. And where we go from here, well, that's a good question. The bill has co- closed down all avenues for appeal to court or to the labor board or for arbitration or for conciliation. So the only real avenue labor has left is to um, you know, defy the law, which is what they're essentially doing. So now you know, the sides are, are dug in over this this question of legality. Uh, but, you know, in, in, you know, in the context, the Ford government changed the law in the middle of the debate. So, it, you know, the, the law becomes itself challenged. 
Um, so we have that happening as well. And the Ford government's also got its eye on the collective agreements of the teachers and the broader public service, which are all coming due in the next year or two. Uh, and I think part of the reason they're taking this hard line is they don't want to open their pocketbooks for one union, knowing that other unions will want to sort of match that. So I think there's, you know, that's probably part of the broader, broader question as well. Yeah, and what kind of impact, I mean, we'll talk about this, uh, I, I want to talk more at length about what this means in other parts of the country, because I'm sure all other provinces are having a look at what's going on here to see exactly well, sure. how this how this unfolds. Um, but they're going to have to sit down and talk at some point. I mean, uh, this can't be, this can't drag on for months and months and months. This is clearly what neither side wants here. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's made it almost impossible for the unions to do that because if they stay out on the picket line, the, the legislation will fine them at half a million dollars a day, $4,000 a day per picketer. I mean, it would get in the hundreds of millions of dollars per day. And if the province isn't insisting on collecting that, I mean, the union can hold out for a little bit, but it's going to be very difficult for them to maintain a long strike if the union, or sorry, if the government is, wants to collect on those fines, um, which is a question mark because... Whenever there's a public sector strike, Ben, there's always three parties, right? There's the union, there's the government, and then there's the public. There's and public we know opinion, that the public yeah. Is, yeah. yeah, and the public, I mean, the public is probably divided on this, just like there are in all, all disputes. There are parents, just like the, your guest from last night, who is very concerned, and there are parents who are like, listen, I'm really concerned about the quality of my education, and paying these workers poorly is not going to help with the quality of education. So you're going to have that kind of debate happening in the broader public as well. And how public opinion falls on this question will guide the parties, right? Um, but I think you're right. At some point, they're going to have to come back to the table and sit down. I mean, QP did, um, you know, cut their wage demand in half in the last week. Uh, that is how collective bargaining is supposed to work. Uh, the government refused to listen to that. Uh, I mean, the ability to strike is part of the collective bargaining process. The threat of withdrawing your labor uh, is uh, what pushes people to come to an agreement or to lock out. So, you know, the Ford government really closed that avenue very early in the process. And, you know, even though they've been bargaining for months, you know, collective agreements usually come down to the wire, uh, or at least close to it. Uh, That's part of the process, too. So the last week has been wasted with this posturing. um, And I think both sides are suffering for it. And it's really too bad, because this could have been avoided with uh, negotiations taken taken seriously. So that is a question mark. And I think you're right, the broader issues around the country. Happy to get into that as well. Bill 28 is a catastrophe for rights and freedoms. This catastrophe could leak outside of Ontario and across Canada. That was Noah Mendelssohn-Aviv. She's with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association speaking yesterday about Bill 28, which is in fact the bill that uh, the government of Ontario passed to force uh, 55,000 education workers back to work. They instead walked off the job today. Um, I'm speaking with Charles Smith. He's an associate professor at the University of Saskatchewan and co-author of Unions in Court, A History of the Labour Movement's Engagement with the Charter. Um, how might this spill out of Ontario? I'm sure other lots of governments uh, know they have to negotiate with their public sector unions, that the de- wage demands may not be what they want to see. Um, how do you think this could spill outside Ontario's borders? Yeah, it's a really good question, Ben. Uh, you know, we know that Governments of all political stripes uh, have used back-to-work legislation in the past, uh, specifically in the 80s and 90s, like with some intensity. It's tailored off a little bit, but still fairly common. You know, the federal liberals have used it. The federal conservatives have used it. So we know this is a tool governments use. But one of the one of the one of the things that government unions have been able to do is push back against that in court, and not being able to do that in this case, if the Ford government is successful, if public opinion comes down on their side, uh, or if they win. 
uh, you can guarantee that other governments, probably conservative governments, but perhaps liberal New Democrats ones as well, will be looking at their public service negotiations. And if the unions are asking for what they see as too much money or too few, too, too you know, too generous a benefit, um, what would stop them from doing that? And I guess the slippery slope argument, right? The slippery slope is that if the use of the notwithstanding clause to uh, block people from challenging legislation in court becomes normalized as it seems to be becoming more normalized. And I think we can be as critical of Doug Ford as we can of the Legault government in Quebec, which used it to take away the rights of minorities in the public service and, and other ways. Um, if that becomes more normalized, then I think we start seeing a slippery slope of some of the rights and freedoms that are protected by the charter uh, that, you know, I think raises a lot of concern. So I think there's two answers to your questions. We can see it more common in labor negotiations, which will undermine the ability of public sector workers to bargain and strike. And we could see it become normalized with governments that want to do some pretty nasty things uh, to erode our, our rights and freedoms. And that, I think, is, is a real concern. Right. And of course, part of the problem here all along has been politics. The fact that uh, Francois Legault uh, and Quebec have been allowed or not allowed, but at least sort of tacitly allowed to use the notwithstanding clause in this way to circumvent the charter uh, has given the nod, the green light to other governments to do it. I mean, if you're Doug Ford and you look at what Quebec did, you think, well, why not? You know, why not? I don't want to, I don't want yeah. to fight this in court. Why wouldn't I do this, right? Um, well, it's it, the it, third it's, time he's used it. Sorry, to, sorry yeah. Ben, I didn't mean to interrupt no, you, but it's the not third at all. time Go ahead. the Ford government... The third time the Ford government has used the notwithstanding clause, uh, they did it for municipal elections. They did it for uh, election spending city hall during size. election. And now, right. I'm sorry? Yeah. For the city hall size and then for the election spending, yeah. yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, he is normalizing it. And, um, you know, that that is the concern in of itself. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I apologize. No, not at all. No, I was, uh, about, to, I was about to, I was getting to the question there at some point. I guess the, the, the real question is here now, if it's being abused, uh, in a, or being used, I should say, in a way that it wasn't intended to, and that's up for debate to some extent. There aren't many options here, are there, for for other than public opinion saying you can't do this? Which I guess that we come back now to Ontario and what you, the point you were making before we went to the break. Public opinion is really going to matter here because if the public stands up and says you can't do this to the Ford government, even though they have a huge majority, uh, that may yeah. chill other governments from doing the same. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think when you look at the, the construction of the charter and, and the usage or the, the inclusion of this of this section, which was quite controversial even at the time, uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau and both both him and Brian Mulroney didn't agree on much, uh, Ben, but they both did not like this section. But it was a compromise uh, for uh, provinces that were concerned that in exceptional circumstances, the co- a conservative court or reactionary court might undermine provincial rights in some way or the collective freedoms that, of health care or something. I mean, that was sort of the argument at the time that it would be rare and exceptional. And the normalization of it has to be concerning for Canadians of all political stripes. Uh, I mean, that really was never the intention of it. If you look at the framing and the founding of the charter, um, that's not what it was ever used for. So Ford, the Ford government, I think, is going to be a, a bit of a test case here because it's so controversial and it's so public right now. And you've got, you know, in the balance, the fate of, of public education in the immediate, um, you know, in the immediate conflict. Um, no, there's a re- this is a re- these are re- this is really high stakes poker. The Ford government is playing with the public and the union, and it's not clear who's going to come out on top. And I think your your initial question was right. It has to be solved at the bargaining table. And right now, the sides are so far apart. It's hard to imagine bargaining happening uh, in good faith at this exact moment. Well, Charles Smith, thank you so much for your insight on this tonight. I appreciate it. You bet, Ben. Anytime. Nice to talk to you. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's uh, Cadence Weapon. He's a well-known Canadian hip-hop artist. And his song, Connor McDavid, and you may know why he uh, pays tribute to Edmonton's favorite, um, because he grew up in Edmonton. <laughs> so that's why he pays tribute to Connor McDavid in that song. Uh, Cadence Weapon's been around for quite a while, but he did win the Polaris Prize in 2021, which is Canada's uh, Critics Prize for Top Album. It's been run won by Feist, Buffy St. Marie, Arcade Fire, uh, amongst others. So that was a big deal. Um, but he wrote an interesting article this week or recently in Toronto Life magazine that really caught my eye because ever since sort of the height of the pandemic uh, lessened, and live music became an option again. One of the things that I've heard lots of people talk about is either A, how much they were looking forward to going back to seeing live music again, um, or B, how good it felt to be at a concert, whether it was a big one in an arena or a small one in a club or somewhere down just something local and small. People were excited to see live music again. That was one of those things that we really missed while many of us were locked down or kind of locked down, or at least places were closed, or you couldn't attend events of that kind. Um, and it wasn't just big-name artists. I mean, I've been to a few big-name shows, I've been to a few festival shows, but uh, it was especially the festivals and the smaller venues that I saw people really excited about, because they are really the backbone of the live music experience. It's great to see bands you love in big venues like arenas or stadiums, uh, but it's not the same as seeing a band that you really love, or maybe a band that you're growing to really love in a small venue where it feels a lot more intimate. But it turns out, according to uh, Cadence Weapon, that you may not be getting as many opportunities to head down to a local club to watch live music these days because bands are scrapping tours due to the high costs and low returns of hitting the road these days. There's a lot of reasons for it. Uh, but again, he felt the need to speak out about what was happening, both on behalf of the musicians and for fans who may not understand what is going on behind the scenes and are also getting upset when shows are being canceled, when bands suddenly decide that uh, being out on the road for either at all or the length of time that they had planned just doesn't make sense and doesn't make dollars and cents either. Uh, Roly Pemberton is Cadence Weapon's Real name. Uh, again, he wrote an article in Toronto Life called Musicians Like Me Can No Longer Afford to Tour. Live music won't survive unless the industry changes. Again, the Edmonton-born hip-hop artist has been performing under the name Cadence Weapon for well over a decade now. It culminated in that 2021 Polaris Prize, the critics' pick for Best Canadian record or album. He's also the author of a book called Bedroom Rapper, Cadence Weapon on Hip Hop, Resistance, and Surviving the Music Industry. And he joins me now from Hamilton. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, thanks for having me. For um, audiences who may not be familiar with your work, with you, um, you grew up in Edmonton, um, came from a really musical family, and uh, sort of explains a lot of, uh, you have a wide variety of tastes. See, your music reflects it. You have a, a, breadth, a breadth of musical loves, clearly. Yeah, for sure. You know, my dad was a DJ um, for over 20 years on CGSR, college radio, and he was one of the first people to introduce Edmonton to rap music, you know, but he he played everything. He played soul, funk, you know, sometimes he'd play like Jimi Hendrix. He would like open up his show with uh, the 2001 A Space Odyssey theme. Beyond that, you know, my, my mom played piano and my uncle was a jazz musician. So I had a lot of music in my family, for sure. Tell me about being Poet Laureate of Edmonton. That must have been an interesting, even an interesting decision on your part to take up the role. 
being poet laureate of Edmonton, you know, that was a really interesting experience. That was uh, from 2009 to 2011. You know, so I was 23 years old when that first happened. And at the time, I was the youngest poet laureate in the world. And there was a lot of scrutiny on me. The idea of a rapper as a poet wasn't as well known in Canada. And this was before Kendrick Lamar won the Pulitzer Prize. So, you know, there was a lot of uh, resistance to the idea of somebody like me being uh, considered a poet laureate. Yeah, people were even upset when Dylan won the Nobel, right? It was, uh, you know, we've come, we've come a long way in that sense when it comes to what what is what is poetry and what is lyricism, right? Uh, did you find? I mean, you've always clearly had something that you things you'd like to talk about, things you want to talk about. Do you feel like in Canada you've been, have been given the opportunity to talk about the things you feel should be heard? Well, I, I don't know. I don't think I would say I was given the opportunity. I feel like you know I had to take, take it. Yes, indeed. You know, I feel like, you know, there wasn't really a lane for the kind of music I was making. You know, like I make rap music that has electronic beats that's, you know, I consider it to be kind of outsider music that's influenced by everything from UK grime to, you know, 80s new wave music or whatever. And I feel like there, you know, I've been just kind of like creating my own lane in Canada and hopefully making it easier for the artists who come after me. That's like a big thing for me is to really do everything I can with my platform to make it easier for the artists after me. You tell me about that because, uh, because it will encourage other artists looking out there thinking, I don't fit into a box. How can I be, how can I make this work? Um, it, it must be both a challenge and an inspiration to do what you do. Yeah. You know, it, it is a challenge, but I feel like, you know, you have a huge advantage, you know, when you're doing something that hasn't been done before, you know, it's, it's a totally, open landscape, you know, and I feel like, you know, I, I, I've never wanted to do anything that just sounded like someone else, you know, and I feel like being innovative, being creative is what has given me longevity in music. It, it, uh, the 2021 Polaris Prize is, is a big deal. I mean, and, you know, and when I was living in the UK, often, you know, the Mercury Prize winner was a huge deal. The Polaris Prize winner in Canada is a big deal. It's a, it's an honor. You've been nominated quite a few times, I know. Uh, what did that, what was that like for you to, to win it at last? Yeah, it was very meaningful. I mean, particularly for the album, uh, Parallel World, you know, where, you know, the songs are about, you know, race and inequality and all these things that have been on my mind and in my life for so long. And to have people really respond strongly to it and really resonate with it, you know, it was very meaningful to win for that particular album. And, you know, coming out of, you know, the pandemic, you know, this time where everything stopped and I had to really just take inventory of my life and of my career and to come out with the, uh, you know, the first album to really uh, speak to the pandemic on a large scale in that way in rap, you know, it, it felt really good to win. Yeah. You mentioned at one point that the pandemic gave you an opportunity. It was like being locked in your mom's attic again to mm-hmm. sort of go up and, and do the writing and sort of, um, and I guess once you'd won, um, it, it would have been important, I imagine, to try and go out on the road and share that music with your fans again in person. Of course. Yeah. I know that was um, one of the first things that we decided was, you know, I, I went on tour two days after I won Polaris. That's remarkable. That's, uh, <laughs> it was, but you've talked about this and this is where we were going. Um, it's become a real challenge. I mean, this was, this would have been where one would have thought it at being sort of a, a crowning moment where you take the win, head out on the road. And s- basically it's a celebration, right? Uh, but it was quite different. It, you found a very different world out there for the touring artist. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, I think the the issues that I found, you know, touring is always hard. You know, as a musician, it's always a very challenging experience. It's like mentally, physically, and financially stressful. You know, it's very unpredictable. That's one of the things about it is that, you know, there's some things you can do to predict things like, oh, look at pre-sale tickets or whatever. And these are tried and true ways of understanding whether you're going to have a good tour or not. But coming out of COVID, it was a situation where, you know, I, I was touring the States. And so, you know, you have a good show there, you have a bad show there. Uh, but then you have to deal with, okay, I got to get PCR tests. I got to, you know, I have all these expenses that I had before, but everything's more expensive, you know, like gas and food and flights and hotels and everything is going up, but my fees are staying the same, you know? And so it was just an experience where I, you know, it, it, it was pretty similar to previous tours, but you know, I would say that's where that I did in 2021. I couldn't have done it this year because things have gotten even worse since then. Yeah. And you felt the need to write about it, which is always interesting because what motivates people to speak out is always fascinating. But that's a problem. I mean, if we stop seeing people such as yourself performing, it really robs everybody of something important, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think we lose a lot um, as a culture, you know, when, when you don't have you know, local shows, you don't have mid-sized bands coming to town. You don't have that musical identity in your system, city, and you don't have a strong musical ecosystem. You, you risk losing your cultural identity as a city for sure. You know, um, I definitely feel like, you know, uh, a lot has to change. That was the reason why I decided to write the piece that I did for Toronto life was basically, um, I feel like I hadn't really seen something from an artist's perspective who's actually gone on these tours and who has been on the front lines and seen how things have changed. And I really wanted to just speak up for my fellow artists, but also younger artists so that there's going to be a future for them to be able to get out on the road and develop their careers the way that, you know, the people before me could. feels like some of the inequalities we saw highlighted during the height of the pandemic society at large, we're really seeing them in the music industry now where, you know, all the spoils go to a select few and a lot of the rest of the artists are kind of left struggling not only to get their music out there, but also to be seen uh, performing, as you were mentioning in the article. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I think what we're having here is it's, it's a confluence of a few factors all coming together that are really bad for developing early artists and mid career artists as well you know like um a thing that you're seeing now is you know venues and promoters they haven't done anything to improve uh health and safety at all since the pandemic began you know and i've seen it a few times where one positive case can sink an entire tour you know it can and it can mean you know a total financial collapse you know it's, you you end up losing all these flights and hotels and you you don't get that money back you know, we're we're dealing with inflation on a huge scale for everything that all of our expenses, you know, and I feel like artists, they're often the the canary in the coal mine, you know, um, in culture where, you know, when you can't afford food as much, you know, entertainment is usually the first thing to go. And uh, artists are suffering all, all around the world. Just from the, the article that I wrote, I've been getting such a vast response you know it, it's really resonating with a lot of people all kinds of bands but also music fans and i think the thing that's really hitting people is there's a lot that people don't understand about the music industry and about the live music industry such as you know how how little streaming income we make you know it's like 0 0.00318 
cents, you know, per stream on Spotify in Canada. Yeah. You know, I don't think your average person really knows that. They just know that they get any song that they want um, at any second, you know, for a monthly fee. People don't think about where that money actually goes. Um, I don't think people understand, you know, how how expensive it is to go on tour. Like your average tour, if you're going for like three weeks, it can be anything from $60,000 to $100,000, depending on, you know, if you have a tour manager, if you are got a tour bus, if you got a van, if you got need work visas because you're playing in the States, if you've got backing musicians, lighting, sound technicians, you know, there's so many expenses and hopefully, you know, you can break even, but now with inflation going up it's a situation where you know it's not even worth it to go on tour because there's no way you're going to make the money back yeah you you were mentioning in that article that you lost money i mean you'd come off a polaris prize win and you lost money on that tour and that's that that must be i mean yeah it must be defeating in some ways to 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 realize what you're up against in that sense oh yeah no it's hard i mean i mean i should clarify that that tour is a u.s tour i'm a canadian artist right right so it's like a really different touring situation there you know like i i just came off of like having a really successful summer of festivals you know that i think that's really where a lot of musicians are going to go you're not going to see you know your favorite you know band from another country playing in a local club going forward you're going to be seeing them on festival bills where it's a bunch of bands and there's a lot less risk for the individual bands. But the way when I, and I was mentioning to you before we started this, that my dad was a booking agent when I was a kid. So I have some understanding of how that works. Um, It feels like what's happened is that with less and less money to go around, that it's actually the artists getting squeezed out here. And, And if the artists get squeezed out, then there's nothing left, right? I mean, the whole thing falls apart if you don't have, I mean, I guess people will always want to perform, and want to perform their music but it feels like if you, if you can't make a living doing it then we're going to lose something absolutely you know and that's why i think it's so important that we reform the music industry because the way it is now is not working and is not sustainable going forward you know i really think there needs to be more of a focus on safety and venues i think that's a big thing where there needs to be like higher air filtration standards like the same way that you have to have a certain decibel level that you have to be below there should be air filtration standards at every venue um i think you know one of the worst things is festivals and venues they all uh a lot of them charge 25 percent and that they take from our merch sales right from from all the records and shirts and everything that we sell we for festivals we often have to give 25 percent and you know that's something if we could get rid of that that would be immediate relief for every musician you know, I, there's so many things in the music industry that I think your average fan doesn't realize comes out of the artist's pay. You know, like you can be playing at a club and they charge you for the security sometimes. They'll charge you for, you know, renting the room. They'll charge you. They'll take all the alcohol sales, but then they'll take a cut of your merch. You know, it's it's this is really just a workers' rights issue, you know, yeah. and it's and it's the same as any other industry that was affected by COVID-19, where the workers are being exploited and are not being protected. That there was a situation whereby they could, where the, the, the balance of power shifted, right? And 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 we see what's happened. What but The difference, though, here is that fans can support their favorite artists in ways that in other industries, the average person can't as easily. What would you like, what do you, what do you recommend that fans do to try to improve the situation for artists such as yourself? 
There's a few things you can do. I mean, I think the number one thing is, you know, if you see an artist that you really like coming to town, make sure you buy a pre-sale ticket. You know, it sends a signal to promoters, venues, and booking agencies that the show should still happen because a lot of people are canceling shows because of low ticket sales. Um, buy music directly from artists, if you can, at shows, on their band camp pages, or on their websites. And I think another thing that would be really helpful is that if you could reach out to festivals and venues and tell them to not take 25% of the merch sales, you know, I, I, and I'm working on that. I've got a few, you know, initiatives that I'm looking into now about making that become a thing of the past. And part of the inspiration too for your article, I know, was that a lot of fan anger over bands canceling when they realized that it just didn't make sense to go out on the road or at least not to do as extensive a tour as they had planned. Yeah, you know, and that's the other thing is really just um, don't be mad if you see one of your favorite bands has to cancel a show because there's usually a lot more behind that decision than you realize. What next for you? What uh, you, the Polaris Prize was the last time out. You have the book written. You've you're, you continue to write stuff and speak out. What uh, what's what's in your plans? Well, you know, I'm just doing my thing. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm working on another album. I'm pretty far into another album, which it'll come out next year. And I'm I'm working on a, another book as well. Oh, fantastic! Well, well, we'll look forward to seeing all of it. Uh, uh, Raleigh, thank you so much for your. Uh, <laughs> I can do this again. Rolly, thank you so much for your time today. It's uh, much appreciated. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, a little more than two weeks away now from kickoff for really what is the world's biggest sporting event. It's the World Cup of Soccer. Canada's taking part for the first time since 1986, so lots of excitement about that. But this year's tournament, held in the fall because it was too hot in host country Qatar to hold it during the usual summer months, approaches with quite the dark cloud hovering over it, though. To be fair, it was controversial. From the get-go, when FIFA, soccer's governing body, awarded the 2022 tournament to the energy-rich tiny emirate on the Persian Gulf Coast, ordering or bordering Saudi Arabia back in 2010. Uh, there is next to no political freedom in that country. Its record on human rights is pretty dismal, including treatment of women and the LGBTQ, LGBTQ community. Uh, homosexuality there is illegal. And to top it all off, the glitter of the World Cup was meant to sweep some of that under the rug at least. But instead, the many billions they spent on building what was needed to play host has exposed even more problems, much of it surrounding treatment of migrant workers who did all the heavy lifting uh, and paid a significant price for it with their lives in many cases or in some cases. So today, uh, no surprise, reports that FIFA sent a letter to participating nations, no doubt Canada was included, asking them to focus on the sport rather, rather than Qatar's human rights record. FIFA writing in a letter, quote, please do not allow football to be dragged into every ideological or political battle that exists, end quote. This comes as FIFA has faced criticism for deciding to hold the tournament in Qatar, where being gay is considered a crime, and where there have also been concerns for women's rights and the condition of migrant workers who built the facilities that will be used during the World Cup. Just last week, Australia's team released a video calling for a migrant worker center, a worker compensation fund, and the decriminalization of homosexuality. The World Cup begins November 20th. In Esdalekwatera, ABC News, at the Foreign Desk. So FIFA, as always, wants silence. Cutters, rulers, call it a ruler, calls it unreserved or undeserved slander. What's going on? Human rights group call it 
much-needed sunlight. So silent slander and sunlight. They also say, by the way, that Canada could be, soccer Canada specifically, could be doing more to call out problems in Qatar. Joining me now is Michael Page. He's Deputy Director for the Middle East at Human Rights Watch, and he joins us from New York. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, Ben. You know, I was in London. I remember when this was announced. It was announced that, of course, Russia and uh Cutter had been given the World Cups. I think there was a lot of surprise at the time. There was certainly a lot of concern about human rights. I imagine that as we now approach the 2022 World Cup, that a lot of those concerns were well-founded. Yeah, those concerns were, were justified. And, and Ben, if we can just zoom in, what is the concern exactly? Is that when Qatar was awarded the World Cup by FIFA in 2010, there were two things that were incredibly well-known. There was one, a massive infrastructure deficit that needed to be addressed and built, right? The hotels, the expanding the metro rails, airport, everything that you need to host a a mega tournament in which there are something like 1.2 million expected visitors to come right. to Qatar. In a and small place. Two, yeah, in a small yeah, place. For, yeah, for a small place, right? 2026 yeah. is hosted yeah. in over, over numerous cities in three different countries, right? right. Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. So, you know, you have this massive infrastructure deficit and they, they're more importantly, there were no labor conditions that were fundamentally in place to protect migrant workers from the serious abuses they ended up facing. And like that can be very simply summarized as very serious and widespread wage abuses in which employers kind of steal, you know, money from workers, thousands of unexplained deaths. And this is a country where in the summertime, right, temperatures can reach something like 42 Celsius in, in July or even hotter. And that's incredibly difficult for people to work and incredibly dangerous, especially when there are insufficient protections. I mean, that's why the World Cup is being hosted now. And then, you know, this the kind of fact that many people are also paying these massive recruitment fees in which they're essentially paying to work in Qatar. And so that leaves them in debt and also leaves them with even less choice. And so all of this is happening within what's called the kafala system. It's a sponsorship system or it's sponsor, it means sponsorship. And it's a labor governance system that gives employers incredible power vis-a-vis migrant workers. And so all of that, all of that was the reality. FIFA did not make those conditions incumbent on Qatar. All these abuses followed. And while there have been some reforms and some promising ones in the past few years, that really doesn't address all the very serious past abuses that have occurred since 2010. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what one imagines, and if anyone's ever been to the Gulf states, one understands how the system works. I mean, labor there is uh, both plentiful and inexpensive. Labor rights are few, if any. Um, but when one, one turns on the World Cup starting on November the 20th and sees all these gleaming new stadiums and sparkling new roads and all the different infrastructure that's put, put up, I mean, one of the big issues, of course, has been this question of deaths because the the, the Qataris, of course, completely dispute the number. Um, but there's a lot of, I mean, from the other side, there's been a lot of investigations into just how many deaths there were. And as you mentioned, it was in the thousands of, of laborers died over the decade that it took or more that it took to build all this stuff. That's right. I mean, fundamentally, we don't know exactly how many deaths there have been of of migrant workers. And the reason we don't is because Qatari authorities 
have fundamentally failed to investigate deaths of, of migrant workers, right? A large percentage of deaths are classified as essentially unexplained or, or due to natural causes. There's like multiple reasons for it, but there's two very important ones to, to keep in mind is that number one is that there is an incentive in place for employers to categorize a death as unexplained, right? Someone dies in their sleep, et cetera. That could be because of the serious effects of heat that we know uh, affect the human body, cardiac arrest, kidney failure, et cetera. But if, an, if it's categorized as unexplained, then the employer is not on the hook for compensating in the same way that they need to, to the families, you know, of migrant workers, right? And number two is, I'm sure, Qatari authorities were rightfully concerned that this could be a huge issue of credibility if there really were comprehensive and disaggregated statistics around the many migrant workers that have died. And so it's really been a fundamental failure of political will on the Qatari side to push for investigations, because I think they were worried what would come of it. So we do have some statistics, we do have some numbers, but fundamentally, we don't have a clear picture of how terrible it actually is because Qatari authorities have have really stopped that from from being possible. It was funny, I was reading earlier um, this week that uh, Sheikh Hamad, uh, or Sheikh Al-Tani rather, in, 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 in Qatar has been saying that no other country's ever been targeted this way, this unprecedented campaign that the host country has suffered. Um, how do you explain it to an audience that may or may not like, that may or may not be paying much attention beyond the football, the soccer? Uh, how do you explain why they should care about this stuff? Why it matters that a host country uh, can be seen to be getting away with with labor with labor rights abuses? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I, I want to address part of this point is that you 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 rightfully point out that I think particularly in in recent weeks, Qatari authorities and public statements have been increasingly on the defensive, right? Even accusing criticism of uh, having racist motivations. And I think there's a few things to say. Is that number one, you know, a number of human rights organizations were also harshly critical of past World Cup hosts, including, for instance, Russia in 2018 or Brazil uh, before them. And those critiques included the very serious labor abuses. However, right, like the the level and magnitude of abuses in Qatar is notable, right? I mean, there are something like over 2 million migrant workers or 90% of the of the workforce. They have built a massive amount of infrastructure. Qatari authorities have said it's something like $220 billion worth of investment that they've, that they've put in. In a system where there have been very few protections for them and that those protections even recently, you know, have, have been still partial, too little, too late, have major gaps that exist, it's it's just been a huge problem. So I think the reason that that there's so much criticism now and it's resonating is that it's connected to us as fans. Like I, I enjoy watching the World Cup. I have a whole kind of childhood uh, yeah. of watching famous famous uh, events and missed penalty kicks. You know, by oh yeah, the heartbreak you know, of the World certain, Cup by yeah. certain teams. Yeah. Right. But 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 I think in this one, we're very conscious of just how connected I am from watching to sponsors making money and profiting off these games to an in, you know, often featuring an infrastructure that has been built off of either migrant workers having their wages on them or dying from it. It makes people incredibly uncomfortable. 
it's done. I mean, everything's built, right? So what's done is done. What sort of message do you think the world community now needs to send and the sporting community needs to send organizations like FIFA about the future, about where these games, where these sorts of huge competitions should be held? Absolutely. It's a, it's a great question, Ben. I, mean, I think we can break it down in, in two ways. Like what what still remains to be done now? What's in our power to do? And I think one of the kind of core fundamental issues we need to keep in mind is, is that this is not just a Qatari government problem. FIFA, as the global kind of global football body or international soccer body governing the sport, they chose for Qatar to host this, knowing what they, knowing what they knew. They had business and human rights responsibilities to protect migrant workers, you know, that, that were going to build the, this World Cup. And they have kind of massively failed to, to protect them. And so one of the demands from human rights organizations, from labor groups, from uh, migrant workers themselves is to establish a remedy fund, essentially a compensation fund for migrant workers who face the most serious abuses building the World Cup. And I have to say, it's that there has been a kind of a mix of, you could say, positive or negative in terms of senior figure support for such a thing. But I think there has been a lot of positive. It is not without consequence when people in the football industry speak out on rights abuses. But we've had a number of kind of former footballers have said on record that they support a compensation fund for for migrant workers, as well as a number of other football associations, the Germans, the Belgians the UK, the US. And I, I want to say for your audience, I think it's been disappointing that uh, the Canadian Soccer Association has not really supported in the strongest terms that they can a uh, remedy fund for migrant workers. And it's something that we hope, you know, is something that they change their minds and they have a statement kind of alluding to abuses and they support workers' rights but they have not made a, a public commitment to it. So I think that's in part what we hope from many people who are as part of the football industry is that they should be on record for kind of addressing the abuses that we can still address now. I think for the future, I really hope that FIFA and other entities within the football industry take their human rights responsibilities seriously when they choose the next hosts of the World Cup. So 2026, it's Canada, US, Mexico. But what happens after, right? Saudi Arabia, for instance, is part of that bid. Are the very serious human rights concerns when there's a bid that uh, involves Saudi Arabia going to be you know, critically assessed for a future bid? I, I hope so. Um, will you be watching? I mean, all I, Canada's playing, so I feel like feel like I'll be watching at the same time. You're like, wow, you know, I saw that the city of Barcelona is not going to show games publicly. Like there is, there is a bit of a, a bit of a bitter taste heading into this one. I feel very conflicted wanting to watch it and join the, the U S the U S team is in it. I'm American. I'm, you know, I cheer my team on despite, despite a history of, uh, you know, at least a history of youth of, of regular disappointment, but yeah, yeah. I don't know. Right. And so uh, I, I, I end very conflicted about about uh, my role as just a, a spectator and fan. Michael Page, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ben. The word reconciliation gets um, used a lot these days. And it isn't always clear. And it's in fact, it is clear that it doesn't always mean the same thing to different people. For example, 
When the province of BC last week announced it wouldn't back a First Nations-led bid for the 2030 Winter Olympics and Paralympics to be held in Vancouver and Whistler, those behind the bid right away spoke of how it set back reconciliation. Um, here is Chief Den Thomas of the Tilbatoot Nation and Squamish First Nation Councillor William Williams from last week. This is 10 step backwards in reconciliation. The province has to step up now and, sh- you know, build that trust, build that relationship with us. We didn't come to the table asking for a blank check. We were giving terms of this ain't the right time. When will be the right time for Indigenous peoples to be at the forefront in this so-called spirit of reconciliation. Uh, I should say that was Wilson Williams, uh, Squamish Nation First, uh, First Nation Councillor. And it got me thinking at the time, because the way the province explained it was that they didn't want to commit to another Olympic bid because it's expensive. Um, you need to guarantee there's always problems with cost overruns. It was going to be to the tune of billions. And they weren't ready to do that. They felt there were better things to spend their money on. Um, they did make the decision, it seems, unilaterally without explaining it to the groups who were supporting the bid. Uh, but it felt like this was a situation where the province acted in what it thought was the best interests of all British Columbians. Um, but that's part of the problem here. At least to me, this was a question of fiscal responsibility. Others saw it as simply dismissing a well-thought-out project without the kind of consultation that they deserved. And it was about respect. So that leads me to this. What is reconciliation and what can we do to advance it? It's a question Jody Wilson-Raybould gets asked more than any other by Canadians, according to her. So the former Minister of Justice and Attorney General for Canada decided to put her thoughts down on what is a topic of crucial importance really here to try and provide some answers. The book is called True Reconciliation, How to Be a Force for Change, and it comes out on Tuesday. It rejects the idea that reconciliation is too complicated or too hard, that things will never change, and takes what can be a very broad and emotionally charged topic and tries to break it down into some core ideas and approaches that can be used by you, me, your community, organizations, even government, because when we often put a lot of emphasis on those big moments or events, such as the papal apology for the Catholic Church's role in residential schools or the findings of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, real change and perhaps real reconciliation often happens quietly behind the scenes as attitudes shift and actions come to reflect that shift. And so ahead of its release and a book tour that will take Jody Wilson-Raybould back to Toronto Ottawa and beyond. It's my pleasure to welcome her back to the show to talk about the inspiration and motivation behind True Reconciliation, How to Be a Force for Change. Thanks for your time and welcome back. Yeah, my pleasure to be back. Thank you. This is, um, we spoke about a little bit about this book project last we spoke um, about six months ago. This was, this one's quite personal for you. What what does, what does True Reconciliation, the title is often says so much. Why True Reconciliation? Well, I, I mean, thank you for, for I'm happy to circle back on this. And I can't believe um, the six months has elapsed and it's actually coming out next week. You know, for me, uh, the title True Reconciliation is is trying to um, navigate through what I like to call in some respects the noise of reconciliation, how much we have discussions that everything out there is labeled reconciliation, which effectively in some circumstances makes nothing (laughs) reconciliation. So I I put true in front of reconciliation for me. True reconciliation is about all of us as Canadians contributing to the development or the further development of different 
patterns of relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples that recognizes our distinctiveness, um, our differences, but also most importantly recognizes that we're part of an interconnected whole as a society. So true reconciliation is actually about advancing those patterns of positive relationships, moving away from denial of Indigenous rights and moving away from the long shadow of the colonial legacy. From what you've uh, said, uh, that oftentimes people have good intentions when it comes to this, but but don't know where to begin or don't quite understand um, what it is that that this all means, I guess. is And, and in some ways that that leads people to a certain paralysis when it comes to to sort of advancing because as you point out a lot of the good that happens when it comes to rebuilding or at least establishing a better relationship happens in the background it happens in the dark it's not the big events so you were saying that a lot of people come come up to you and they say well what can i do yeah i all the time and i think it's even i mean it's getting more so in terms of um engagements with people and i think that's entirely positive and there's lots of different reasons for that i mean one of the things that i i try to make clear throughout the book is that there has been a lot of change in terms of advancing reconciliation and building more positive relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. And I believe that that is because Canadians are becoming far more aware of the reality of the history of this country. And it's not necessarily the history that we learned uh, when we were in school. Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, you know, the revelations of the mass graves, these all contribute to that increased understanding of the dark chapters of the history of Canada. And people want to do something. Um, But these periods of transition and transformative change, which I think we're in, can become confusing for people, all people, myself included, about what to do. So what I sought to do in in answering that question, I'm often asked about what I can do to advance reconciliation. I put it and distilled it down to three core practices of learn, understand, and act. And they're interrelated practices about learning about the silos that we've created um, as a result of the history of colonialism, understanding each other and the diversity that exists between us and breaking down those silos and acting in coherent, constructive ways to advance and build those more, um, that acceptance and care and those more just relationships between and among all of us. There is, I, I said sometimes, and this is right across the spectrum, impatience. You know, on one side, there's imp- there's sort of a, you know, for those who've been disappointed again and again and again, there's an impatience for this one to be real. For, for those who are just learning, there's an impatience to make it all better. You know, there is an impatience to make it, to make this, to, to atone for it all. Um, and then there's there's an impatience on another side that are just like, they don't, I don't want to hear about this anymore. How do we, how do you try to find... How do you address that impatience? Because as you've pointed out, you know, it leads people to think this is actually harder than it is. Um, it, how do you how do you think one addresses the frustrations that are out there or at least the impatience that is out there? Yeah, I think I mean, it's it's a good question. I, I mean, I think there needs to be impatience out there. I mean, I'm impatient about advancing these issues and, and the relationships. I mean, I break it down to 
and people have a diversity of opinions about um, we've done enough or why do we continue to hear about this? This is confusing. How come we haven't been able to resolve drinking water advisories on in Indigenous communities? Like breaking down that confusion and, and recognizing that we all have a role to play in advancing true reconciliation that we can't just say um, this is somebody else's responsibility but i coined this term or i borrowed this from a friend of mine and advanced it further in the book um, we all have a role to play as being in-betweeners right. and looking and understanding the diversity that exists you know indigenous and non-indigenous more so than that in our society just diversity of people that exist in Canada and becoming bridges between those communities, understanding different worldviews and how our worldviews have created the Canada that exists today. And when more and more of us act as in-betweeners, we start to develop a shared understanding of the history of the country and continue to advance in terms of actions about how we close the gaps that exist between the socioeconomic conditions of Indigenous peoples because you do point it out, I mean, there have been there has been uh, you know inquiry after inquiry. We see uh, you know more and more. This even this week we had a, a new report on on uh, indigenous representation in the prison system. I mean, and it never seems to change. And I suppose it can feel overwhelming sometimes when you see the scope and the breadth of the problems that exist. Um, how does one go then to become an in betweener when one sees something like that and you think, wow, that's how how are we ever going to solve this? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, we have a history in this country, and, and I'm not pointing blame at any one particular government or individuals, but we have a history of, of looking and viewing reconciliation as an event, as something that happens and then it's over. I draw on um, the analogy of a marathon. Reconciliation is a marathon. I don't know if it's because I was running a marathon uh, while I was re writing this book. True, but, it could be, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. reconciliation or achieving true reconciliation requires constant effort over time. And the sad reality is, is that governments of the day have viewed it as an event where something happens and a whole bunch of investment of time and energy goes into it, but then it's over or it dissipates from public dialogue. We need to continue to maintain um, our discussions about reconciliation and, and how we continue to build those relationships with Indigenous peoples. And it could be any number of actions in each of our own individual lives and responsibilities and jobs and, and uh, at schools. Um, there's lots of different activities that can be done. Simply recognizing that reconciliation um, isn't um, necessarily advanced through what I like to call performative or symbolic acts of reconciliation. There are different ways and different um, impacts of different acts. I mean, certainly wearing an orange t-shirt or lowering a flag or having a national holiday of truth and reconciliation are important for educational initiatives, but they don't necessarily lift a child out of poverty. They do not recognize Indigenous people's rights or implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So we need to know what actions are impactful and what actions challenge, elevate and advance reconciliation. You know, one of the things that struck me just looking through reading your op-ed in the Globe and Mail and so forth was that, you know, so, let's take something like the Pope's apology, the Pope's tour. Yeah. There was so much 
put into it. And I felt like as it was happening, those on the, those who were looking for reconciliation in that moment would, could only be disappointed because of course it isn't, right? It's words. It's not actions, right? And that was one of the things that struck me that sometimes we, we set up these, these ideas for failure by, by putting so much weight on certain events. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it's a good and important point and different um, events and actions are important to have discussions about. And I think you and I talked a little bit about the the Pope when um, he apologized and came to Canada. I mean, that, um, and I don't want to take away anything for residential school survivors and families that saw that moment as an act of reconciliation. It was important for them to hear that apology. That's important. But I always look to and view um how do words or how are words translated into action? Are the Pope's words in terms of apology going to translate into action and return sacred artifacts to Indigenous communities? Um, how is the Pope's apology going to impact individuals here within the Catholic Church? But more importantly than that, moving beyond the words or the symbolism or the performative reconciliation, it, it's it's looking at what the actions are going to, what actions are going to be taken, how are individuals going to act, how are governments going to act, what is the Pope's apology going to do in terms of um, creating that space for the recognition of rights and, and respect and creating new patterns of relationships for Indigenous peoples when it comes to their relationship with non-Indigenous peoples. Um, I'm about actions and not simply words. We've heard too many words, but how do we translate them is the challenge for all of us. How, when you look at the political, you know, the, the lay of the land politically these days, do you, do you see what you want to see from, from all parties? Not just, you know, not just the liberal, not that just, just the government, but when you look right across what everyone's talking about and doing, do you see any signs, any positive signs that are out there in the political world? Because of course, a lot of us, the best way we can, one of the ways we can advance reconciliation is, is in the way we vote, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, um, I, I mean, it's kind of a, it's not a hard question for me to answer, but I'm trying to answer it in, in a really constructive way. I, I mean, um, sure. I mean, there are efforts that the current federal government and provincial governments here in, in British Columbia, we have um, a, an UNDRIP law and we have an action plan about implementing the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. That's important. The federal government has made significant investments, has sought to address long outstanding court cases around discrimination with respect to Indigenous children. These are all important realities. But what I have talked about in the book and talked about when I was a minister, um, we need to have real tangible action that creates transformative change. We haven't seen any federal government um, enter into that space where there is a recognition of Indigenous people's rights and that in we create the space as a country, as a government, to enable Indigenous communities to rebuild um, their governing systems through self-determination, including self-government. That transformative change, and I see that rights recognition as um, one track that we have to pursue um, in order to um, enable Indigenous communities to actually make decisions to exercise their self-determination over their citizens and themselves. That's the transformative piece that um, has been missing from government action since um, the day this country became a country. Indigenous peoples have been left out. 
And, and I gather, I mean, true reconciliation, that that's the goal. I mean, I know this isn't a guidebook, um, but what would you like people to walk away thinking if when they finished it? I hope that true reconciliation uh, helps to cut through some of the confusion around reconciliation, some of the noise. Um, and I hope it's an accessible, practical guide that relays three um, core practices, learn, understand, and act about what people can do. And what I was taught very young, when I was very young by my grandmother and my parents, um, which is what I hope people take away from this book, is that everybody has a role to play in advancing true reconciliation in your own lives, in your own families, in your own communities, and in our country. And through um, a vision that recognizes how interconnected we are and appreciates how distinctive um, we are and, and can continue to be, creates a different vision for our country, a shared vision for our country. And I think that's what we need through acceptance and care um, for all of us to live in harmonious relationships with each other. Jody Wilson-Raybould, I look forward to uh, to seeing how it's received. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, I look forward to seeing it, how it's received too. And thanks for the chat. It's always a pleasure to, to join you. 